I'd like you all to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'd like you to think for a moment in silence about the people or the person who might have moved you towards Jesus, who maybe shared their faith with you in the past and set you in motion in your own spiritual journey, or maybe somebody that had invited you to this church, and that's why you're here today. So let's be quiet for just a moment. I want you to identify and think about that person and silently thank God for them. Okay, you can look up. It's good sometimes to remember things like that, isn't it? All the people throughout our lives that have helped us get to where we are today. I used to be a pastor, but I'm not anymore. Started when I was 19 years old and then was sent by my church to Southern California at the age of 21, newly married to plant my first church in Southern California amidst a bunch of uh, druggies and ex-hippies and young people who had uh, come to know Jesus in what was called the Jesus Movement back in the uh, mid to late 70s. That began uh, a 28-year career of pastoring in five different churches. And then in, at the end of 2006... I retired from pastoring and started Small Church Pastor, which provides coaching and consulting and encouragement and resources to pastors of all size churches, but I specialize in smaller churches. And so I'm into my 11th year now of full-time talking to pastors. That's a lot of pastors to talk to. That's a lot of conversations. And occasionally I'm asked by people, Dave, what are some of the most common problems that pastors have, or what are some of the most common problems that pastors want to talk about? That's a really good question. Let me give you a few uh, ideas. Let me uh, let you see into what my life or my week is spent doing. It's not unusual for pastors sometimes to want to talk to me about maybe, oh, problems that they might have with their church board. You guys have a really good church board here. Jeff has shared with me about uh, what a great group of guys uh, help lead this church, but not all churches have really good church boards, and so pastors sometimes want to talk about their frustrations in that area. Sometimes pastors want to talk with me about maybe a, a belligerent church member that's causing problems, or someone maybe that gossips a lot or slanders the leadership of the church. Sometimes pastors want to talk with me about how to maybe develop an outreach focus in their church 
or develop a plan uh, to uh, educate and disciple the members that they have. Sometimes pastors want to talk with me about the vision for the church, where the church is going or where the church should be going, and to help them develop a strategy uh, to take the church in that area. Um, whatever kind of church goals that, uh, that the, a pastor might be working with, a lot of times they want to talk about how do we achieve our goals. Sometimes pastors want to talk with me about personal issues. Most pastors don't have anybody that they can really talk to, that they feel is safe, that they feel, you know, they can share their hearts with. And so sometimes pastors want to talk to me about uh, burnout that they're experiencing in the ministry, sometimes how they might develop more healthy boundaries as the leader of the church, or maybe some area of personal focus in their lives. These are just a few examples of the common topics that can make up my day and can make up my week. But there is another subject that comes up time after time after time. It's so frequent. Pastors want to talk to me about it. Pastors talk to themselves about it. But one thing I began to realize is that very, very few pastors actually teach on this subject. It's a topic they deal with all the time. It's something that often frustrates them, and this topic can even suck the very life out of a minister. You want to know what the topic is? The topic is change. Or to be more specific, how hard it is for church people to be open to changing things that need to be changed in the church. Not too long ago, I asked some of the pastors that I was working with to share with me some of the different changes they had tried to implement in their church that was met with great resistance. Here's some of the things that they came up with. One pastor said, I tried to change the music on the church. This was a pastor whose church was used to singing hymns and they wanted to make the change into a more contemporary worship like what we enjoyed this morning. And boy, that just caused problems and resistance in his church. Some pastors have just tried to change the order of what happens on a Sunday morning. I, I don't know how, how much, uh, you know, what we experienced here, you know, this morning is kind of like the normal order, but some churches, they just have an order of everything they do. First we do this, then we do that. And, and the pastor just tried to change the order of the church, and it was met with a lot of resistance. Church polity, all that means is the way that a church is governed, the way a church makes, um, you know, decisions, how the church is run. Some pastors who've tried to change that have run into problems. One pastor was talking about how hard it was to change his church from having pews to having chairs. Boy, in, in older churches and in, uh, that are maybe populated by older people, uh, you know, pews have become, you know, were like a sacred thing. And in some smaller churches, a family would actually purchase a pew and it would have maybe the family's name on it. And, and so to suggest, you know, to tear the pews out and to put in chain, uh, chairs was, you know, them as fighting words in some churches. And, and this pastor shared that with me. Some pastors said they ran into trouble when they were simply trying to change the name of the church. 
or the how, why, and where uh, our money is spent, or the church budget trying to change the allocation of funds was a hard change to navigate. But also, what I hear pastors talk about in regards to change so often is the frustration they faced, the resistance that they encountered when trying to change the church or to move the church from being an outward, uh, from being an inward focused church to being an outward focused church. I'll unpack that for you a little bit more in just a moment. I recently read an article by Deborah Ike, and she is a business and church consultant. Her article listed the top 20 things that result in pastoral burnout. Top 20 things. Do you know it was number four? Think about that. Number four out of 20. Number four was a congregation resistant to change and or only wanting to focus meeting the needs of their current members versus also trying to reach new people. You see, some Christians believe that the purpose of the church, that the church exists to meet the needs of their current members. This would be called an inward-focused church. Other Christians believe that the church exists to reach new people. Uh, Evangelism, this would be described as an outward-focused church. And then some churches and some Christians, they believe both are true at the same time, that the church exists to care for its current members and also to reach new people. That's what I think. And I'll tell you where I get it from. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 28. You're very familiar with this passage of Scripture. You've probably heard sermons on it before. Matthew 28. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Most churches and most pastors would agree that this is the primary mission of the church. You reach people, then you teach people. Or you reach people, then you disciple people. I was once talking to a pastor that was a big-time Fisherman, I don't know if they've got any fishermen here in the audience, but he said, Dave, you catch them, then you clean them. Boy, I was never much of a fisherman. Being raised in San Jose, California, you know, you just didn't go fishing that much. My grandpa was a fisherman. And my, uh, my wife, Ellen, her father uh, was a great fisherman. Ellen, growing up, their family owned a cabin on a place called Bucks Lake. I wouldn't imagine anybody's ever heard of Bucks Lake. But it was Bucks Lake uh, up in, I think, the Pacific Northwest. And they, had, they called it a cabin, but it wasn't a cabin. It was a really nice house. You know, it's like somebody planted a nice house on a lake, and they called it a cabin. 
And so as long as Ellen can remember, she would go up there during the summer and her father taught her how to fish. The whole family, they were big fishermen. So now I've fallen in love with, at this time, this 16-year-old girl, and I'm 18 years old at the time. And so I was lucky enough, every summer, the family would invite me to go up and spend the, you know, a few weeks up at Buck's Lake. And of course, because they were fishermen, they'd always go fishing. And I was always a bit intimidated to fish, you know, around people that really know how to fish. And one time we went out on the lake, and I couldn't believe it, you know, I actually caught a 16-inch rainbow trout. I was so proud of myself, you know. I was so hoping to impress Ellen's father, Don. And I remember we came back, and on the outside of the cabin, uh, they, they had a place where they cleaned fish, and it was an outdoor, like, sink and, and, and everything. And I can't remember where she went, but we got out of the boat, and I knew that I was supposed to clean the trout, but I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never cleaned a fish before. I knew that it had something to do with tearing the guts out of it and getting rid of all the bones, you know, and everything, but nobody had ever told me really how to do that. So I approached, you know, the cleaning uh, place, and I, I remember just kind of, just, I just made a mess of it. It just looked like a massacre. Have you ever had one of those times where you can sense that someone is behind you? You know, and I, so I'm looking at this mess, and, I, and I, I just sense somebody is looking behind me, and lo and behold, it was Ellen's dad, the very man I was trying to impress. And I'm just going, oh my God. And he just kind of came up, and uh, he looked over my shoulder down there, and he said, uh, what you doing there, Dave? And I said... Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm cleaning the fish. And he looks and he goes, hmm. And he just walks away, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you know. It took me a while to impress Don Dorsey. You know, you catch the fish, then you clean the fish. What I've discovered over the last 11 years of working with churches is that a church left to itself leans into cleaning rather than catching. By that I mean a church left to itself naturally becomes more inward focused than outward focused. And in fact, having an outward focused church, it doesn't happen without a plan. And typically, an outward focused church does not happen without making some changes. And one of the greatest reasons why a church doesn't move forward in its mission to reach new people is a failure to embrace certain changes necessary to reach new people. And so they get stuck in an inward focus. And once a church gets stuck in an inward focus, eventually they will reach a plateau in their growth and they will begin to decline and in many cases they will die. You know, they say that 80% of churches in America have either plateaued or are in decline. And so often this can be traced back to a resistance to necessary change on the part of some or oftentimes many of the people in the church. Now let me talk to a specific group of people that are here today. The older you are and the, young, and the longer you have been in a church the harder it will be for you to admit that your church has areas in which it needs to change 
the older you are and the longer that you've been in a church, the harder it will be for you to embrace the change that's needed in order to keep moving forward in reaching new people and making disciples. It is true, yesterday I turned 60. I couldn't believe it happened. It's like, when did this happen, you know? My wife keeps saying, Dave, it's only a number. It's just a number. And oh my gosh. But my generation and older are the most who are going to be resistant to change, especially if we've been Christians for a long time and if we've been churchgoers for a long time. Now, pastors aren't the only ones who face resistance, uh, resistant to, to change. Jesus' earthly ministry was filled with such resistance. I want us to go over to a story there in the Gospels. So now turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. That's amazing, isn't it? Verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The poor Pharisees, what they were saying to Jesus is, We don't do it that way. We don't hang out with those type of people. And Jesus says, I know, I'm doing something new here. I'm changing things. Look in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But yours, they're always eating and drinking and partying. Jesus says, I know, I'm doing something new. I'm changing things. Then look in verse uh, 34. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, Otherwise, the new wine will burst and the skins and it will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. You see, the old wine skins of the religious establishment, they couldn't handle the change that Jesus was bringing. He tore them like new wine in old wine skins and eventually those same people will tear him. Verse 38. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. 
You see, Jesus had a new wineskins way of thinking. The Pharisees had an old wineskins way of thinking. Now, whenever a change is suggested or implemented in a church, the church will have and the leaders will have uh, one of two ways to think or respond to that change or that proposed change. They're either going to have an old wineskins way of thinking or they're going to have a new wineskins way of thinking. Let me give you an example of what an old wineskins way of thinking looks like or sounds like. I want you to imagine that maybe the leaders of the church and Pastor Jeff either have implemented something new or are suggesting or proposing something new that's going to happen. An old wineskins way of thinking says, but that's not the way we do it. An old wineskins way of thinking says, we've always done it this way. Or, there's no way I'll ever agree to this. Or, why can't we just leave things the way they are? And resisting change, this is a, an, an old wineskins way of behavior. When you resist change before you've had an adequate amount of time to listen, think, and pray about something. Those are examples of an old wineskins way of thinking in response to change or proposed change. Now let me give you an example of a new wineskins way of thinking. Once again, imagine with me that some change has been set in motion or some change is being proposed by the pastor and the leaders of the church. A new wineskins way of thinking will respond and will think and will say, well, if this will help us reach new people, then let's do it. Or... I'm willing to try. Or, I like the way things are, but it's not about me, and it's not about what I like. That's not the most important thing. Or a new wineskins way of thinking might say, if we don't reach new people, eventually we might plateau, be in decline, and give us enough time, we might die as a church. One new pastor told me I had no idea it would be so hard to change things in my church. One pastor told me that the church hired him to grow the church but didn't want him to change anything. Columnist Sidney J. Harris said, Our dilemma is that we hate change and love it at the same time. What we really want is for things to remain the same but get better. Benjamin Franklin said, when you're finished changing, you're finished. And what I've seen is that when a church is finished changing, when they've become set in their ways, the, ways that, the way that they've always done things, it's usually the beginning of the end. And many times during the life of a church, they will be faced with the need for change. And they'll have to decide when that happens, are they going to be old wineskins or are they going to be new wineskins? Now it's true, we don't just change for the sake of change. Winston Churchill said there's nothing wrong with change if it's in the right direction. And one of the things that I've spent more than a decade doing 
is helping pastors and churches discover the right direction and implement the changes necessary to go there. When does a church need to be open to change? I came up with six things. Six times in the history of a church where the church, the leaders, the congregation need to be open to change. Let me give you those six things. A church needs to be open to change when the way they've done something just doesn't work anymore. We see this in churches that the way they did ministry 10 years ago doesn't work today. Or sometimes even the way they did certain things five years ago, it worked them then, but it doesn't work today. So when the way we've done it doesn't work anymore, probably we need to be open to change. When there's a better way to do something than how we've been doing it. That's when a church probably needs to be open to change. When, of course, we feel the Holy Spirit is leading us as a church to change things. Or when the pastor suggests change. Can I pause for just a moment? I want to talk with you a little bit about your pastor. A while ago, Ellen asked me what I thought was a very interesting question. She said, Dave, all these years you've been working with church leaders, you've been working with pastors. Uh, She goes, who are the pastors that have really stood out to you over the years? And I don't know that I ever really thought of that before. I thought it was a great question. So I sat down and I was just kind of thinking, going over my notes, looking at all the pastors I'm currently coaching, those that I have coached in the past, and I came up with a list of five pastors over the last decade that really, really stand out to me. And I've never told these pastors that they made it into my top five list. I just kind of, you know, thought it and wrote it down. You know, your pastor, Pastor Jeff, is on that list. He's smart, he's wise, he loves being a pastor, he loves you, you can trust him, he has great integrity, and never let anyone tell you otherwise. He's a good man. When a pastor suggests some area that might need to change in a church, pay attention to the pastor. Why? And please don't be offended by what I'm about to say. When a pastor makes recommendation for change, pay attention to it, uh, take it seriously, trust their judgment. Why? Because they're smarter than you are in that regard. Think about it. Pastors spend thousands and thousands of dollars going to Bible college and seminary and getting degrees. They spend a lifetime serving in churches. They go to conferences. They read books. They get together with other pastors talking about these kind of things. Typically, they know what they're talking about. Typically, your average church member doesn't. 
And I mean no offense by it. I'm just saying that you're not living in the same kind of world and focus and professional focus that most pastors uh, have. Can a pastor make mistakes? Of course they can. All I'm saying is that when a pastor says, I think we need to do this or I think we need to do that, we want to pay attention to it because they know more about that than we do. Let's go back to that list. Are you still with me? You still like me? I don't care because I'm flying out on Tuesday. (laughs) No. I mean, it's a hard thing to say, but it's true. Let's go back to that list. We said, when does a church need to be open to change? We said that they need to be open to change when the way we've done it doesn't work anymore, when there's a better way to do something, when the Holy Spirit is leading the change, when the pastor suggests the change. Number five, when the church will help us reach and when the change will help us reach and retain new people. And then here's, here's an interesting one. When the way we've done something is no longer culturally relevant. Now, the funny thing is, and this is especially true of churches that have been around for a long time, most churches started out being culturally relevant, but they didn't stay that way. They got stuck in some period of time. When I went, uh, Ellen and I went uh, to Southern California to plant our first church, 1980, I mean, we were culturally relevant, I mean, you know, we were casual in how we did Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a band instead of a choir. And, right, you know, these days that's not unusual at all. But back then it was kind of like, wow, you know, a lead guitar, electric guitar, drums, you know, and things like that. I wore jeans instead of a suit and tie. My hair was longer. It was darker. And God have mercy, I had an earring back then. A really cool black stud. I think I only have one picture of me at that time in my life, and I keep it under lock and key. But you see, back then, this was culturally relevant for Southern California. Most churches, they start out being culturally relevant, but they don't stay that way. They get stuck at a certain time in history. I experienced this not too long ago, as I'd never experienced it before. A small uh, four-square church, and if you haven't heard of four-square, it's a, it's a denomination. A small four-square church in Rogue River, Oregon, asked me to come and speak at their church. We'd never been there before. And so... Ellen and I, you know, we got ready, we went to church, and we walked in the, uh, the front door, and they were just wonderful people, they were nice, they were warm, they were friendly, but I'm telling you right now, walking into that church was like walking back in time. If, you, if a person ever wondered what a four-square church, um, and we attend a four-square church now, so don't think I'm like putting down four-square churches, I'm just saying, if anybody wanted to know what a four-square church was like in the early 70s, that was the church. It was dated back, I mean, the decorations reminded you of back in the 70s. I don't know how this happened, but people, they, they kind of dressed back in that era. 
They talked like they were back in the 70s. The poor pastor, when he was in front of his people, he he spoke and and preached like preachers did back in the 70s. I I was fascinated by it, by a, you know, from a sociological standpoint and studying church. It was like, man, this is what church was like for these people back in the 70s. You see, they got stuck in the 70s. And this is uh, common in so many churches. Now, you know, uh, missionaries, when they're getting ready to go on the field, they will have what's called cross-cultural training, won't they? You ever heard of that? Cross-cultural training is what most missionaries go through. And they learn all that they can about the people and culture of those that they're trying to reach. And they adapt the best they can without compromising their beliefs. And this is what churches need to stay on top of, cross-cultural education and understanding the people, understanding the community around them, because it's the community around them, it's your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, those are the people that this church needs to try and reach out to, those who are unchurched and haven't heard about Jesus yet. If we're going to continue to move forward, we'll need to be open to change. Most people say they're open to change. Heck, I'm open to change until I'm asked to change something I don't want to change. I say everybody's open to change until they're not. And it's so true. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I hope you believe me when I say this. I am now just a regular church member like you are. I was a pastor, you know, 28 years. Then I retired. Now I go to someone else's church. And we go to a church um, which is a little bit smaller than your church. And, you know, it's, it's weird to be a pastor and no longer be a pastor. It's weird to be like the man, and now you're nobody, you know? You're just sitting in the pew with everybody else, all the normal people, you know, because pastors aren't normal. And it's weird. There have been a couple times in our church where I have heard about or seen them um, bring about some changes, and I didn't necessarily care for the change. Or I'm sitting there thinking, I wouldn't do it that way, you know? And so I know what it's like to be in a church. And so here's what I try to do in my church when change is being announced or change is being suggested and it's something that, you know, maybe I don't necessarily understand or get behind. Let me share with you, like, the the kind of attitude that I try to have and let me suggest that maybe this might be a similar attitude that you might have in the event, in the future, that that whatever changes are going to be suggested that maybe you don't understand or you don't agree with. First of all, I try to remind myself that it's okay for me to share my opinion about the problems that I might have with the proposed change. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not okay for me to be irritated with those who don't share my opinion. I try to remind myself as a normal member of a church now that I need to check to see if I have old wineskins or new wineskins way of thinking. 
I try to remind myself as a normal church member now when change is being suggested or implemented that I need to trust that the Lord is leading the pastor and the leaders. And once a change is decided upon that I didn't care for, I ask God to help me have a good and supportive attitude. And if the idea proves to have been a bad one, I don't gloat. I don't say, I told you so. I don't say, well, nobody asked me my opinion. I'm just like you now. Few things reveal our character and maturity more than how we respond to change. There is a direct correlation between a church's ability to move forward and reach new people and their openness to the necessary changes that might be needed to reach new people. Now, I have limited information about your church and your leaders, but I have enough information about your church and your leaders to tell you that in my professional opinion, I think your church is positioned for a very exciting and fruitful future. I really do. I think a couple reasons for that is because you have a new great pastor and you've got a really, really good leadership team. The only question is, when the time comes for change, will we flow with it or fight against it? Will we embrace it? Or will we resist it? Healthy, happy, and effective churches, they have a culture that they've developed that expects change from time to time, that is comfortable with change, and flows with change. When the time comes for change, and it most certainly will, I encourage you to flow with it. You remember at the beginning when I came up here and I asked you to close your eyes and to sit silently and think about maybe the people in your past that helped you move towards Jesus, maybe the people in your past that had a great impact on you that now has resulted in your own faith journey with Jesus Christ, maybe even the people who told you about this church to come check it out and so you did, you liked it, you stayed. Those people had an outward focus. Now the Father wants to move you as individuals and collectively as a church to continue that process of reaching out to friends, relatives, neighbors, and co-workers who are unchurched and don't know the good things that we've discovered by having a relationship with Jesus. He wants you to touch them, to impact them, to influence them, just like those people that came to your mind when you were sitting in silence, influenced and impacted you. I believe this church is positioned for a very exciting future. And we'll see it if we're open to change when change is obviously needed. My encouragement to you is flow with it. Don't fight it.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for being here today and all the friends that I've already made. I pray this would be a courageous church, that you would put courage in their pastor and leaders and the people, that they would be uh, courageous enough to embrace change when it's necessary. And I really do pray that you would release this church to reach new people and then train and equip and inspire and motivate those people to deepen their walks with Jesus Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you very much.